It was in late December of my 21st year, and I found my pockets bare enough to once more seek employ by way of the Atlantic Ocean, doing whatever simple work a man with high spirits and low ambition would provide a ship's captain. This expedition would reveal itself to be a cursed endeavor from the first breath, and soon would find ourselves adrift in near-frozen waters, a sea of fog engulfing our entire world. For days that limped along endlessly, we struggled to ease the boredom by staring off into the mist, straining our eyes for the slightest break in the white hell stretching before us. On what could have been the ten thousandth day, we saw it at last, the slightest of shimmers, dead ahead, and it was growing larger, brighter, and we were headed straight for that horrible, beautiful light, and in our madness we thanked God for delivering us into his grace. Little did my crewmates suspect we had been delivered instead to the gaping maw of the manscape. When the light that had overtaken us subsided, we opened our eyes to sight ever more miraculous. Dry land. We set sail for the island now before us, not far from swimming distance away, too desperate for the feel of grass beneath our feet to notice how strangely red the skies now looked. How still the water seemed despite our steady progress through it. Once we reached land, the miracles did not cease. Littered on the grass were countless wooden crates, filled with the most strange and miraculous wares we had ever laid eyes upon. Whether these belonged to another doomed crew or to the island itself, I will never know. But I am resolute in my certainty that the items were not of this age, or perhaps even the sphere of the cosmos. First, there were the boxer briefs, black as night and as comfortable as a glove, gently holding the curve of our nethers in ways the lovers we had left at home never could. Then there were the crates marked Crop Preserver, which contained a wonderful ointments which cured us of the chafing that had long been a sailor's greatest misery. Then there were the twin oddities that were the weed whacker and lawn mower, vibrating wands which effortlessly removed the hair from our noses and unmentionables, respectively. And the most curious of all were the shirts, all emblazoned with a single, enigmatic word, Manscaped. By the time anyone had noticed the ship had vanished, our hair had already begun to grow at a rate we, in another life, would have found troubling. But the compulsion to shave, to style, to clothe oneself in form, fitting underwear, it conquered our minds in a bloodless coup, and all it asked in return for its gifts was that we stay in this manscape forever, shaving forever, a crew of stylish men trapped in a realm of perpetual grooming. I share this story not as a warning, but as an act of obedience to a new 
God, I both fear and love. The one who has manscaped my soul and speaks now through me to deliver a message to those who seek its bounties. Venture to manscaped.com and use offer code BOXOFFICEPULP. All one word. To get 20% off your order plus free shipping. I will repeat this once more. Manscaped.com. Offer code BOXOFFICEPULP. Your balls will thank you. Here's Johnny! I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. Welcome, everybody, to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me is my co-host, Jamie. And we also have with us today a guest... No, Jamie, you don't have time to talk. we got to move. <laughs> today, we have our guest star. Horror fans know him from Scare Me, Werewolves Within. Uh, plus, he just had two new films drop on Shudder this month, A Wounded Fawn and Blood Relatives. We've got writer, actor, producer, director, funny guy, and probably nine more superlatives he's earned since I started this intro, Josh Rubin. Hell yeah, weirdo, brother, brother-in-law, friend, friend of the country, and cat dad. I always forget um, to put those on. You got to put them in the, the business card so I remember. Oh yeah, my business card is full up. I take up all the space at uh, number eight Helvetica. <laughs> <laughs> that's the money font. Hell yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so since we're starting off with the reference, this is something that I've been thinking of here. What 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 is your feeling on references and homages in horror films? Because I feel like a lot of them take a lazy route where they're like, oh, don't forget to stop at Carpenter's to pick up some nails. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when it's when it's a really well-made film, like pretty much anything Machete did, uh, or at least like Machete's uh, It Chapter 1 and 2, I'm a 2 fan. I, I, not many people are for some reason. I think it's kind of a major achievement, especially practical effects. Oh, same. You know, I can see where people would be like, oh, bummer, like, uh, you know, dairy, uh, dairy cola or whatever. Um, but uh, if the film is good, I don't I don't really mind as much. Um I think it's great. I mean, I'm a sucker for it. I, I'm, you're also talking to the guy who was like begging Ubisoft uh, to uh, Im, Im, imbue Easter eggs into his obscure video game movie. And they were like, uh, fine, do what you want. I'm like, as a fan, you have to have an Easter egg in your, you know, in anything based on pretty much any IP, right? Like, even for the 10 fans of the original. But yes, lazy homage, I can see where that'd be a little obnoxious. <laughs> I mean, for your stuff specifically... Uh, I really love how in Scare Me, you, you do a, a Crypt Keeper impression, but it, it's not just a name drop kind of thing because it ties really directly into that ending, which feels like a EC Comics type thing where there's cruel irony to cap it off. So it's almost a foreshadowing. Mm. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate when it's a little more inside baseball because we're all, um, I don't know, we're all pretty savvy now. Our our sensibilities are, are uh, I think... They're a little more refined, a little more complex. We're all a little more educated, let's say, on the stuff that might be derivative or homaged to. And um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd like to lean into uh, to a little bit more obscure territory because I think that kind of thing is cool. Like I did, I don't know shit about Akira, 
um, or uh, is, gosh, is it called Hellion? Um, like what Jordan Peele homaged in Nope. Uh, but uh, I love that he did. And, and if I did watch, you know, that anime, it probably would have made the experience a lot more full for me. But for the, that demographic of um, of fan, it probably blew their brains off. <laughs> yeah. um so in a wounded fawn the the references aren't necessarily name drops but they're visual homages right we have the the worm's eye view shot of you that's very similar to something out of the shining uh there's kind of an evil dead Mm. 2 kind of the the snake head thing when he's fighting the stove (laughs) those i thought were really interesting because most of the movie is set within bruce's head the character bruce you know he, he sees all these different things that maybe the real world wouldn't so in your mind, would it, would Bruce be like a horror fan, and that's why his visuals are coming out this way? Oh, this gets in all kinds of like theory territory. Like I I, I don't know where Travis stands on this theoretically. Um, I think Sarah and Travis and I all have kind of disparate ideas. I don't think Bruce is necessarily a horror fan. I think that comes from just Travis Stevens's vision as a as a filmmaker. Um, I think as far as like what actually happens, my, my opinion of it is that there there actually is like a supernatural event and that these kind of um, theories are perhaps torturing him or maybe the head wound is just so bad and he's just so kind of imbued into the art world. That's just how he's associating his, um, you know, his basically devolvement. Um, but uh, I, I never, never imagined him being like, you know, um, uh, also a fan of 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 anything we're familiar with in uh in horror pop culture i think it's all it's all art world for bruce but for travis it's like oh yes this is my my raminess is you know homage is you know his his name is bruce and look at his shirt for god's sake uh look at the level of blood for god's sake his love for giallo his love for you know uh leonora carrington and all these surrealist artists um uh yeah it, it's uh way way more intelligent kind of homage than anything i could have ever imagined as a you know a, an actor turned filmmaker got a 950 on his sat <laughs> so you kind of mentioned the fact that uh the director and you you know we approach the material in different ways how do you approach a project like this where you're an actor and not the writer or the director how do you move into something like that Oh, that's an awesome question. See, I told you there wasn't a whole lot of overlap in this little indie press run. You guys are killing See, it. See, I'm shocked. I, mean, I feel like you probably got this one like eight times yesterday. I mean, probably in different ways. Um, and if I did, it, was, it, was, it wasn't yesterday. It was last week. And so it's like, <laughs> hey, at least uh, at least I've forgotten about it. I, I have a terrible, terrible short-term memory. Um, or long-term, rather. See, I can't even get the right word. Um, I mean, for, for me, like... Uh, someone asked me to come perform that's a whole different kind of set of skills and uh, some of which i can like muscles of which i can relax those will want to flex if my filmmaker's in trouble um you know the director in me will want to help like solve some kind of onset problem without being a mansplainer so that would be my like you know impulsive kind of feeling but i love performing and i love uh you know like the, the acting challenge for this movie is someone who's been a comedian for so long and you know did sketches on college humor for years and years was like you know trying to actually play this for real play this guy as grounded as possible because that's the scariest version of playing a psycho killer not like you know twirling your mustache but actually believing every everything you say is real and actually trying to intimidate and actually trying to terrorize and sort of like being as 
relaxed and casual as possible. So that's, that's its own set of acting challenges for me. So that was my primary focus um, uh, and, and concentration, it, which, which is great in a way. It, it, it's, um, I'm hesitant to use words like vacation and lean back and relax <laughs> because it's not necessarily <laughs> relaxing. But for someone who's so used to commandeering a ship, it is. It's it's fun for me to be able to to just exercise the the initial muscle, the muscle I was initially born with, and and didn't have to try as hard to sort of develop um, my filmmaker muscles. I'm still developing, but my acting ones are like you know I can often roll out of bed and just jump into something. Um, if you can still be rusty, uh, especially if you haven't done it um, in some time, but we we had a nice soft runway of just rehearsals and everything, but. It's a it's a totally different facet and one that I wanna I wanna keep up. When Travis DM'd me on Twitter asking me if I wanted to take a look at a script and was was I still performing? I I, I left. I was like, absolutely, I'm still performing. And you know, because when I get to work with other filmmakers, I get to see how they work and I get to archive how they communicate with their crew and with their actors and tech technique and all that shit. It's all good. I imagine it must also be very surreal at this point in your career to get those messages from other filmmakers that are like, well, if you're still interested in acting, I've got a spot for you. Like, that must oh, feel yeah. incredible. Oh, yeah. Because I'm not in, like, a golden tower <clears throat> at all. Um, I, I am in a condo with my <laughs> wife, and we're bursting out of here. Um, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I, I'm still down for the gig, but I also love the idea of not being able to be pinned down you know people can still find me doing like game changer on dropout like doing funny voices and then those you know that demographic of say comedy fan who might know me from the college humor world might then discover on my tiktok like a trailer for the serial killer movie i'm in or the werewolf movie i directed um and and i love when they're they often discover that and they go or when one set of fans discovers the other um so uh and as someone who's like very much working in the indie world on the side of you know both comedy and horror like uh, yeah i i uh i love it and i i, I want to do it all and it but it is also weird it's weird you know to be offered anything it's still like you know i'm still like a, a kid when i get an audition for something like benson moorhead had a project that they're auditioning right now and even to get that audition you kind of go oh wow that's so crazy like you're even asking me to audition for it. um I love that. And I also, I love the idea of maintaining a trajectory where people don't quite know what I'm going to do next, you know? Um, so we'll see if I can keep that up. So how do you feel about uh, being an actor and a producer at the same time, like with uh, Blood Relatives? How do those two mesh? Well, Blood, Blood Relatives was great because I was 98% producer and, you know, whatever the remaining balance percentage is, uh, you know, Roger Fieldner, it was just a cameo that was a day or even half a day because we were really busting ass on that movie. So that one was pretty, that one was pretty easy. I'd say Scare Me was a little tougher because I produced and wrote and directed and acted. And uh, you just have to, it's all about your team. It's all about just kind of, you know, creating the right team and setting expectations for your team so that you can kind of in a weird way, prioritize each of them in a compartmentalized way so that by the time the camera rolls, you're, you actually are delivering as an actor. And if you're not delivering, you have kind of like safe words or keywords <laughs> with your cinematographer who's playing your, you know, co-director to a degree like my buddy Brendan did. Um, or, uh, or you're at least, you know, you're there to be the best partner you can for like the one and only Ayakash, 
you know, or Chris Red, like to be there a thousand percent for them so that they can do the best job possible. Um, but I also like it. I mean, it's like, again, coming from that like sketch comedy internet world where your, your scout for a shoot was the day you got to set, was the day you shot your, your first take was the day you wrapped. Um, I'm just used to that world of, of speed. And so it kind of, it's sort of second nature to me. I, I kind of, I squirm a little bit when I hear about, you know, buddies who are doing bigger movies with all these resources and they're behind like, Oh yeah, we were, you know, a week or so behind schedule or whatever. I'm like, God, that just, that's so unfathomable to me because I started on a fire. Like I, I truly started this whole thing with a fire under my ass with no money. So I'm, I'm really eager for the next opportunity to, you know, I don't know, hopefully have resources and time, but also I, I kind of, I love, I love pressure. Well, there's kind of a sweet spot too. I think you've mentioned before that if you took a higher budget project, then you have to worry about a, a little more oversight from the money folks. So that can kind of damp creativity. You can, you know, there's this new threshold now called $20 million, where for some reason, $20 million is still like, <clears throat> indie level will keep the cooks out of the kitchen. Maybe it's just inflation. <laughs> like, um, it used to be $50,000 and then it went to 20 million. Um, but it seems that that, that that's still the place where you can like play or whatever. Like I think Violent Night was south of 25 um, and they were mostly left alone. And I think there's still a degree of, even when you're working on a movie of that size, <clears throat> you're still like holding a wall up together or Hollywooding a scrim or um, you know, uh, squirting someone with a super soaker full of blood from off camera. You're you're still <laughs> filmmaking. You know, you're still doing a little bit of that Raimi thing. Um, you know, that makes it uh, kind of magical. So, uh, if if we can jump back to Blood Relatives for just a second here, yeah. When you picked that movie up as a, as a producer, was it just so you could have like the Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter role? <laughs> uh, no, that was the icing on the cake. I, I we like no. I feel like Noah was like kind of teasing me with. Uh, not quite, not quite pulling the trigger on letting me know that that's what I would be. Um, oh, so they surprised like, you on that one. You didn't know you were going into that necessarily. I, I think I did. I mean, I, uh, to be honest, I didn't quite know. I had a gig with Netflix at the time. I did one of their death to 20, their death to 21, 21 special. And I didn't know what that schedule was going to be. And so there was the kind of, I was honestly worried about not being able to cameo because I love the part so much. Um, but I took I took the the opportunity because I never really was just the producer on a movie of that size or on a feature. I've produced plenty of shorts, but like you know the coffee and the stressed look behind monitor kind of thing. I was excited to do that. Um, I'd never gone to just you know kind of be available any which way I can, and producers you know show up and stay for different reasons. For me, it was like to sort of be Noah's director. Um, when he needed me to make suggestions visually to kind of keep it, um, uh, keep the visuals spicy and interesting, just all the stuff that, you know, um, any, any opportunity I had where I could swoop in and make the film better because it was, it was quite a low budget. Um, and that was, that was also super fun. That's, that's what I want a future doing, especially when I'm, you know, I don't have the endurance to do the directing thing. It's like, if I can send the elevator back down, that's the dream. <laughs> But yeah, Roger was fun as hell too. I mean, that was great. You just, you know, do your lazy eye thing and creep Vic, Vic, Vic Morales out as buddy. And that's, that's, that's always a good time. Well, it's, it's such a fun character for the audience too, because you go in with the expectation that this guy is going to be one step away from brain dead. Uh, and he ends up being <laughs> manipulative too. You, you hear, oh, he wasn't such a bad guy. I regret this choice. And you find out he's got a dark side after being locked away for so many years. 
So it's a short scene, but you get to do a lot of uh, zigs and zags you don't necessarily expect as an audience member. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I love that just by, by kind of happenstance that that movie dropped, you know, all but a week apart from Wounded Fawn, where I'm just playing a flat out, you know, Patrick Bateman um, <laughs> a predator and that you can like literally go on the menu, at least as of right now on Shutter, and just see those two movies side to side. And then, you know, what one of my characters pops up and they're quite different than the other. I think that's super exciting. <laughs> yeah, I was telling Cody the other day uh, how much I love that Shudder has a Josh Rubin is insane trilogy. <laughs> they do. They really do. It's been a good time for you, though, because what the last issue of Fangoria had three different articles <laughs> featuring you. Yeah, yeah. I think Brian Fuller called me a slut on Twitter. And it was a huge <laughs> honor um, because he's one of my heroes. And I was like, oh, my God, Brian called me like a Fango slut. I finally made it. Um, that, it's an all yeah, caps. I, I mean, it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And of course, it was all caps. It's Brian Fuller. Um yeah, I mean, just to get like my first experience of Fango at all was <clears throat> having uh, having werewolves on the cover. And so I'm meeting all those guys at our premiere. Like they threw us a premiere party in New York right before Tribeca. And it was summertime after COVID. And we all thought it was over because we all got vaxxed. And like Tara Ansley and Phil handed me all these OG Fangos. Like one of them is Wolf. Ah. I handed a couple of the Mishnah. Um, our, yeah, our... Uh, our werewolves within writer, like we just basically just split them because they handed me like 10 of them. Um, and I was like, the, I can't, I can't be responsible for all these. I have a shelf like that's my office. So I, I, I kind of, I gave some to Mishina, of course. And um, my ex first experience with them was having, you know, my, my fucking second movie on the cover of Fango. So since then to be, you know, tight with Phil and Angel and Jason, like that whole, that whole crew is just such a it's such an honor so then to get three features in it i'm kind of like oh yeah you know it's fango but like i can't lose track of the fact that this is fangoria it's been around for forever um it's the premier horror magazine and uh yeah the the luck isn't lost on me <laughs> have you ever considered uh trying to pitch something to fangoria for an article uh I I have I don't think any take I could possibly have is uh, or will ever be perhaps as articulate as any of the contributors from Scott Wampler to um, you know Brian uh, uh, Barbara Crampton I just there is there are so many insightful and well educated horror historians and fans um, and scholars to not already do for god's sake like they're all contributors and so i i'd have to have a hell of a take i think the one time i did pitch them was really just to sort of you know ask phil if he would <laughs> if he would preview my graphic novel darla so um uh and he was just like well yeah of course um so i was just i was super lucky to get a page or or two just to uh to nod that especially in the, the quote-unquote josh rubin issue <laughs> yeah i just feel like it's every horror fan's dream to get something in fango so man Three pieces in one is, whew, I can't believe you got the hat yeah, trick, man. Like Brian said, fango. <laughs> so uh, I just want to talk about Werewolves Within for just a second and share a little personal anecdote. Uh, to, to prep for this interview, I had a couple friends over so I could show them the movie. Uh, made puppy chow for everybody, sat down, and the best part about it, they all started placing bets on who they thought the killer was. Like, I didn't prompt them to do this. They just started doing it naturally. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends immediately guess the killer uh when pete gets his hand bitten off and i'm like oh fuck oh no she knows it didn't say anything got my cool and then she got turned around by all the red herrings in the film and eventually changed her bet right before the reveal and i just got to Whoa. sit there like oh it's working 
<laughs> that's rad. That's amazing. I always get so my shoulders always go up anytime people talk about who it is on Twitter, even though it like came out like well over a year ago. I'm like, oh, but what about the? Because not you know, not millions of people haven't seen it yet. It did. It did. It has been on various Netflixes. I think Netflix UK and Canada, as well as like. God, it just opened in Busan recently. It's still playing theater. It's like now it's in <laughs> oh, wow. now it's in Korea, which is crazy. So I'm like, oh no, don't give it away. But um, when I was, especially when people are like, I had no idea. A lot of people have called it, but especially when people are like, I have. I mean, that's that's the best. You you know to be able to like you made a who done it. Man. Holy shit. Right. And, well, trying to balance it too, so people don't guess in the first twenty minutes to roll their eyes and tune out. It, it's it seems like yeah. a Herculean task for any guess, mystery movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 tough to do. I think right around the time I don't think Knives Out had come out yet, but <clears throat> by the time we did we did that film, I had rewatched Clue. I was desperately searching for Death Trap, which criminally I haven't seen. Although mm-hmm. now that I have, um, if I ever get to make my Scare Me spinoff, there will be a major Death Trap kind of homage. Um, uh, but I was I was you know certainly. Uh, Certainly was rewatching some whodunits. I, I tried to, uh, I tried to rewatch. God, was it called Glenford Falls? Am I just totally butchering? It's the Robert Altman. Why can't I think of what that one was? The Maggie Smith. Oh, oh, mystery. oh, 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 yeah. God, what was that? <laughs> I, I, I like tried to get through it. I was like, that's the one. I was like, oh no, this is this is not going to be the same tone. But I wanted to revisit, you know, the Agatha Christie of it all to just kind of see if. Um, to see if, I don't know, there's anything to kind of imbue, because I, I was worried. I wanted there to be an, an actual mystery, and I'm not the most uh, intelligent human man. Um, uh, so I wanted to, to make intelligent choices, and I, I really did did, uh, did my homework. But anyway, that's why I'm so thrilled when people are like, oh, shit, I had no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, good stuff. So when you were, I know, obviously, you didn't write Werewolves Within, so that was probably without beyond your scope for writing the ending, but for something like scare me in your writing process, do you come up with an ending first and then reverse engineer the story to reach that point? Or do you typically kind of wander as you write and find the ending through storytelling? That's a great question. Um, When I'm, I want to say I will typically find my way through the storytelling. Although I've written so many scripts that have, I've hit a wall at page 33 because I tried to write it like a novel, like just following my fingers. Right. It's also why I'm so jealous of Zach Kreger because <laughs> I don't think he, that's exactly his process for Barbarian. And he ended up making, I mean, he, you know, of course it was tweaked to be the brilliant thing that it is now, but he sort of found what it was through just a creative exercise for himself and for nobody else. Um I'd like to think that for the for the scripts that I've done, yes, I've more or less outlined and just sort of thought, what's a great story? It always starts with, for me, it starts with sometimes a great image or an exciting image, an image that excites me, um, uh, if not a vibe, um, the way that God Scare Me was, was made at the height of Me Too. And also I was going through sort of a personal crisis, not really sure if I was ever going to get to make a movie and was excited about the idea of making a movie as weird as one that just used sound design instead of actually having props, shit like that. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think for the most part, when I've finished screenplays and I've finished a good amount of them now, I have, I have always known the beginning and the end. It's the middle that's always tough. 
that middle journey, that B storyline is always, is always a tricky one. It, it remains to be the, the sort of stickiest part for me, but somebody phrased it really well. It's like, you know, it's, it's all about uh, how your protagonist gets down from the tree as rocks are kind of thrown at them to you to, to completely butcher the adage I, I read at some point. Um, you know, if, if, uh, uh, whatever act one is your protagonist climbing the tree. Second act is, is them getting rocks thrown at them. And is also in part or ends with them sort of figuring out how they can get out of trouble before they, you know, reach the act three portion of the film when they finally either fall out of the tree, jump out of the tree, um, or climb down the tree. Um, and, uh, that's what you got to do. You got to just at least know what your touchstones are. So I think for the most part, I've known my my beginning and my end. But if someone <laughs> can teach me how to write a good second act, that'd be that'd be awesome. <laughs> Thirty nine years old, folks. He's still learning. Before we go, I I do want to to say uh, on behalf of the podcast, the kindest thing one nerd can say to another: We all trust you with Darkman. Oh, girl! Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, uh, God, that would be a dream. That would be a dream. I think I can do it, but we have to convince the world. The trickiest thing is, um, convincing a big studio, maybe even one of our filmmaking legends, that you don't need to remake it, that there's a way to do this film in such a way that excites the masses where they find out, um, it's a superhero film, kind of in the way you find that out about I don't know, unbreakable. Not that that would be the tone of my, my dark man if I ever got to play in that world. But I do believe that there's a way to reintroduce or for, introduce for the first time this IP to the world without having to like do a remake. Um, and I'm saying that as someone who, you know, was so excited that Liam Neeson said he'd be interested, um, publicly in a, in a new dark man script. Um, I hate, you know, that, uh, that I'm, I'm still very much, that dream is still very much alive. So thank you. Yeah. So if you were to, to do a dark man, considering, you know, the first one is loaded with Sam Raimi style visually, how would you even approach that? Are you trying to do Sam Raimi isms? Would you have to completely scrap that for something new? Uh, I think, I think what you need to do from the get go, not unlike say a movie like malignant, where you jump right in with style the way with any Raimi film, you jump right in with a certain style. You know exactly what kind of world you're in. You just want to start with a world that feels a bit heightened. And so that might be, without giving anything away, that might be through the through the sort of perspective of someone whose reality is a little bit warped or whose existence is a bit heightened. Um, and there are so many movies that that do that and have done that successfully. I mean, even uncut gems, you know, immediately what kind of world you're in. No country for old men, you know, exactly the kind of world that you're in. Um, pretty much any Coen brothers movie. So oh, yeah. it starts with just, I think starting in a certain place. And then <clears throat> I think there's a way to escalate this story anyway, or a story like dark man or in the world of dark man that can ex escalate to wickedness and escalate to that incredible Ramey S like, pace and that color palette almost like any horror movie it's like you know most horror movies start with an intimate love story no not much different than dark man did despite it's kind of batman like cold open and then it escalates and it escalates and it escalates with each sort of rock that's thrown at your protagonist you know and how that changes them i mean that's great because I, you've got the return of the character but then you also have the return of sam raimi's style <laughs> kind of making its full appearance i guess in your description as the movie goes on 
So it's it's a renewal in a whole bunch of different forms as the movie would continue. So now I get to be sad that it's not a real thing. Well, we we don't know that yet. I think I think I need to have my uh, barbarian or smile studio hit before I can even um, play in that arena. But uh, but I've gotten close. I'll at least I'll, I'll say that. Well, plus it's been absolutely fantastic for horror the past couple of years. The box office receipts are amazing. The movies are actually really good. I've been having such a good time. Yeah. All the different stuff Shutter's been pumping out. It's just been an absolute treasure for fans right now. It really has. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to be part of the community, really, in any way. All right. We are almost out of time, but I, I do want to sneak in one more question here. Who are some of your favorite sure. character actors, and have you picked anything up from those guys in your own performances? Oh, my God. If you really, really look um, at my at stuff that I've done, so even in sketches, I feel like I've stolen from the likes of John Leguizamo, Robin Williams, um, Joaquin Phoenix, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Those are like, those are the, those are the pillars for me, you know? Um, and then to see like the incredible actresses that are now coming out that are capable of, you know, far beyond that. Um, it's been a minute since like Kristen Wiig, of course, but Molly Shannon and Sarah Squirm, who's now on SNL. Um, all of these incredible character actors like God, um, uh, I know that there's an actor named Courtney Peruso here in California who's just absolutely phenomenal. She can kind of do anything. Chloe Fineman. Hannah Pilks. I mean that that list goes goes on and on. But yeah, my four <clears throat> my four pillars were the initial uh, <clears throat> I mentioned, and uh, I don't know. I feel like I I can hear myself sort of dipping into a little <laughs> a little like boogie night Scotty every once in a while. I I just did a a sketch yesterday where I was actually playing the Joker for my my buddy Pete Holmes. He he's, does these like Batman sketches and you know, actually getting to like do the Joaquin Joker. But then I had like, weirdly, when I was yelling, I would dip into Phil Hoffman, like <laughs> just do this, like kind of, you know, voice like this, you know, is this, I don't know, uh, which I guess is also kind of Malkovich. But anyway, I, uh, we had such an amazing era of them in the nineties. Um, and, uh, we continued to certainly with, you know, with Phoenix's work, but, uh, yeah, I, um, I, fucking love character actors there's, there's nothing cooler than watch people disappear bless the character actor yeah that's my t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> well uh we have hit our time limit with you i don't want to keep you too long here so folks right now you can check out a wounded fawn you can find blood relatives and scare me all on shutter i hope we didn't ruin any of those for you by spoiling anything <laughs> but uh yeah check those out if you haven't already go watch them again anyways they're fun uh werewolves within i believe is on vod so you'll have to look that one up and uh Boy, can we expect uh, a little insider information here? Would Blood Relatives or Wounded Fawn be making their way to physical media at any time in the future? Physical media, I can't quite answer that. You know, Shudder is going through kind of a crazy ringer right now with the AMC layoffs. It still exists. My homies are still there. We, we had to say goodbye to some incredible pillars like Craig Angler and Sean Redlitz. Yeah, um, who are already off to incredible. Yeah, very. Um, they're already off to some incredible uh, endeavors. But... Um, Physical media, I'm not sure because RLJ is their physical media distributor, and I don't believe they were involved in either Wounded Fawn or Blood Relatives. I think Shudder kind of outright financed them. So I know that in within six months, they'll be on VOD. My guess is that someday there will be some like, you know, even if we have to wait a decade, <laughs> um, there, there will be a... Uh, a really rad physical release of both. I think especially with Wounded Fawn with the 16 mil of it all, we're seeing such a crazy 
response from fans it's been so rad to see um I, I there might be a riot at some point just given how that movie is sort of taken off with with film fans um let alone the the blood relatives demographic of like younger say you know gateway horror kids or teenagers and like families which was our, our kind of goal to bring a shutter to bring, to bring a family film to shutter so i hope that for for that reason i know for that reason it's going to have a nice long life and with a long life comes comes hard media for sure but i can tell you that vol who scored um wounded fawn we have a vinyl coming to wax work oh um, hell yeah that you can yeah that you can pre-order i believe if you look up vol v-a-a-a three a's l um vol on uh, on twitter instagram he has some info up about that and at some point, um, I do believe that Robert Allaire, our brilliant composer um, for uh, for Blood Relatives, um, he's going to put out uh, an album. But I don't know if that will be vinyl or cassette, which I guess is a thing again, or what have you. But I hope it's uh, <laughs> one or the other. It's just so rad. Let's start with digital. You know, we don't all have a tape player. Come on, kids. <laughs> I get a Terravision. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, now I just feel like a hipster with my vinyl and uh, cassette collections stacking up here. I mean, I, well, now I now I feel left out. Dude, I only have a 4K player. So I better get on that shit as well. It's like, come on, you're a filmmaker. I have to like throw out all my screeners or send them to my grandparents. <laughs> now, this has been a spectacular year for horror, but above everything that's come out this year, I think Blood Relatives is in my top three. So I cannot wait to put that Aww. on my shelf next to Near Dark, where it belongs. Oh my god, that means so much. I'm gonna have to. I will tell Noah and and my producers. Uh, that means that means the world. It's fucking cool. I'm glad you love it. We do too. Yeah, man. Uh, both. I I would say if I'm playing favorites here, Wounded Fawn it, it takes the lead for me for favorites. But both are absolutely phenomenal movies. I think everyone who checks them out on Shutter is gonna have a wonderful time. So thank you. Something for everyone. Hell yeah, Something man. For the whole fam. Yeah. So thank you so much for stopping in here today. This has been an absolute delight. Uh, if folks want to find more from you, where's the best place to find more Josh? Uh, check out my website before the socials of it all. You can link to it through there, but joshesmindhouse.com. There's merch. You can buy a, um, a Scare Me screenplay with an exclusive cover from my artist buddy, Henry Gonzalez. Um, there's news. There's uh, all kinds of work updates. You can watch the short films I've produced and starred in. There's all kinds of good good stuff in there. Good place to start. <laughs> I bought that uh, Scare Me screenplay, and I found out how easy I am to bribe because he threw some stickers in there for free. And it's like, oh, fuck. Whoa. That's all it takes for me to be a fan for life. He's got me. <laughs> fuck. This is amazing. You were – well, you know, you're lucky because you were one of the early ones. That was like a – that was a mainly a pandemic kind of endeavor. Um, it was so fun to just get a shit ton of envelopes and, like, go to stamps.com. <laughs> And uh, bankrupt myself um, and just send them out. It's just so fun to be like to have that exercise through the pandemic was uh, was kind of life changing for me. So thank you for purchasing, and I will one day again sign some shit and send out some stickers because I'm I'm sitting on some. So appreciate that. Yeah, it absolutely made my week when I got that in the mail. So uh, oh, man. amazing, amazing. Ah. Well, I have, to, I have to convince Noah to do that with Blood Relatives because uh, that that was just uh, that was that's such a great little people just love hard media stuff. I mean, you know, I have a graphic novel coming out next year called Darla, and like that's I, I, I'm doing it because I'm getting back into comics, and we all like having stuff, right? So, for sure, man, yeah. I'm, I'm excited for Darla too. Do uh, roughly know when that's going to be hitting streets? Uh, according to our uh, our publisher, Invader Comics, quote unquote, early 2023, but there's some really exciting stuff 
um, uh, regarding Darla, especially with um, just how it's going to be divvied out and stuff. They're, they're, they're just full of amazing ideas. That that crew is just so rad to us. And it's illustrated by Brianna Tippett, who did some incredible um, fan art for both Blood Relatives and Wounded Fawn. If you check her out on Instagram, um, Bri Tippett, she's just, she's so, so great. Two Ps, two Ts. Oh, fuck. I need like six more hours to get into all this stuff. There's too many good projects yeah. coming up, man. <laughs> yeah, do it. All right. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again a millionth time to Josh for showing up. Uh, if you want to find more Box Office Pulp, you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, wherever podcasts are found. We're everywhere. We're, we're free. We're loose. Thank you so much for listening. I said that eight times now, but now I'm flustered and excited. Uh, boy, everyone have we a mean good it. night. Ah, hey, the end of the show. I always fuck up these endings anyway. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that is a wrap. Hey, we did it. And like that, 